Amen. Thank you, Jeff. So good morning. Uh, Good morning to you who are at home. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. This morning we're beginning a a series, a new series that we're going to really be doing from here to the time school's out, if you can believe it, Uh, from Hebrews chapter 11. You didn't know there was that much material in that one chapter, but there really is. It's a very, very rich chapter. Uh, It'll be very familiar to some of you uh, uh, from the the stories of the people of faith. And so we're actually going to start this morning by looking at the very first verse, but backing up into chapter 10, because of course the chapter headings are artificial there. And so chapter 10 really leads into chapter 11. And so if you have a Bible and you want to look together with us this morning, we're going to start in verse 35 of chapter 10 and read all the way through chapter 11, verse 2, as we begin this new series. And then we're going to take it chunk by chunk from here. And so... Um, It's on the screen uh, behind me. It's on the screen for you at home. It's also printed for you in your worship folder if you're here in the room with us. So let's read together uh, God's word. The Hebrews writer says this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet a little while, and the one... And the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Well, what's faith then? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that this chapter, Hebrews 11, is just example after example of people and stories from the Bible that serve as illustrations of faith. We're going to take each and see what it teaches us about how to live by faith and not by sight, as we already read, because that is the charter uh, that is upon all of us. Now, Hebrews 11 has been called the Hall of Faith, and I don't really like that, to be honest. And the reason I don't like it is it makes these people here mentioned, Abraham and Moses and David and so forth, it makes them to be, you know, Gideon and Barak, that they're somehow extraordinary, and they're not. They were deeply flawed, just like you and I, very normal people. And so, you know, to get into the Sports Hall of Fame, you have to be the very best of the best. That is not what you have here. That is not at all what we're going to see here in chapter 11. It's the opposite, actually. You're not meant to read Hebrews chapter 11 and think how unlike all of it your life actually is. It's just the opposite. You're meant to read it, and it's meant to show you what your life should look like, too. Your life. Just ordinary Joes, me and you. Who are we? Well, we are those who live in the legacy of those who came before us who are mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11. So the question for us this morning is, where are you having to live by faith and not by sight? Where in your life, on the concrete of your life, as Jeff likes, likes to say, where, where are you having to live by faith and not by sight? If you're a Christian, it's written into the contract. If you're committed to following Jesus, you will live by faith. You will live a faithing life. I mean, this is the way. Right? It's just, this is the way. And so, where are you being invited? Now, when I... <laughs> When I did my notes, I had to change that that word because what it said in my notes at first is, where are you being forced to live by faith and not by sight? But actually, I want to change it. Where are you being invited? Where is 
God inviting you into this great adventure of living by faith and not by sight? And do you have the courage to take the first step, to step out in faith? Uh, Do you remember the old Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade? In my opinion, well, probably the original was the best, you would have to say, but I really like that one too. Uh, If you remember those movies, if not, I'm sorry for you if you're too young to know that. Parents, if your kids haven't seen them, you're not doing your job. You need to take them home and watch them, binge them this afternoon, maybe, or tomorrow during the holiday. But there's the third movie is a movie called The Last Crusade. And uh, in the movie, the Nazis, who are always the enemy, they force Indiana to pass three tests uh, in this temple they're in. They're trying to get to the Holy Grail, and they force him to do it by shooting his dad, Sean Connery. And so his dad is lying there on the floor, and he's going to die unless Indiana can get to the can get to the Holy Grail and bring it back and heal his father. And so he goes through this series of tests, and one of the tests is he comes to this chasm, uh, and he looks out over the edge, and there's no bottom, and it's too far to jump from one side to the next. And this particular test is called the path of God. It's a leap of faith. And standing there, he's trying to figure out what to do. You know, he's like, there's no way I can jump across this. What do I do? And standing there, it cuts to Sean Connery, who's laying on the ground, you know, kind of whispering and gasping, you must believe, you must believe, you must believe. And he stands there, and he's like, he kind of pats his arm like this, and he says, and he steps out into the nothingness, and there is a bridge that he couldn't see. And that is Christianity. And my hope this morning is to help you and to help myself find the courage to take that first step into a faithing life. And we want to do that by talking about faith along these three headings. We want to see, and you'll see there just in the outline there for you, we're going to talk about the definition of faithing as it comes to us in that first verse of chapter 11, but also the action of faithing. And then lastly, the source of faith and where it all comes from. And that's just going to be kind of the way we work our way through this text this morning. So let's start by first a definition of faithing. And it's actually given to us. I mean, we don't have to guess at what the Bible means by faith. The Hebrews writer is very good to us here in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, he just defines it for us. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, in each of these points, I want us to focus on one particular word that I think is of, of significance and, and very helpful. And here I want us to focus on the word conviction there in verse 1. It's the conviction of things not seen. And that word means to be persuaded. It means that you're persuaded by what God has made known about himself and his ways and not by what you can see or by what you feel. That your theology is the lens through which you look at everything else. And so we want to say theology is important. I and mean, maybe theology is the wrong word. I, I just mean, I don't, I don't mean the study of God. I mean something more than that. J.I. Packer wrote a book about, called, uh, called Knowing God. And it's basically a, a book of theology. It's a book about God's attributes, about what God is like. And I know so many people who have been profoundly changed by that book. Not because they got the right information about God, but because they got to know him personally as they read. And that's what I mean by the word theology. That you would know, when I use the word theology, that's what I mean. This is eternal life, John, John writes, of Jesus. That they may know you, the true and only God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this knowing of God is what I'm referring to here. And eternal life there, it refers to a quality, not a duration of life. You don't have to wait for heaven 
You could be living eternal life now, and it's as simple as knowing God. <clears throat> That's what he says, walking with him. Having God as a friend that you go through life with, but ultimately, you can only know him by knowing Jesus. <clears throat> so let me ask, do you know him? Do you live life with him as a friend? Is he a companion, a personal friend to you as you're going about this life? Because that's what it means to know him. And that's what I mean by the word theology when I use it just for shorthand, okay? And so faithing is living from your theology. It's living from knowing God like this. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, who will be very helpful to us as we go along, uh, he's a, a 19th, 20th century famous 20th century pastor in London, he said this, he said, faith means not that I try to reason myself to God, but that believing the revelation given by God, I reason from it. Faith means drawing out the inevitable deductions from what God has said. And so it's really, it's really working out the implications of your theology. That's what faith is. It's, it's, it's doing theology, which is practical application. So I'll give you some examples. If God is, which is of course, what Christians believe, we believe that he is. If God is, though, then I don't belong to myself. Then meaning is not assigned by me to the world. It's independent of me. And identity isn't, doesn't come from the courage to live authentically, but actually the courage to submit to the reality of my createdness. Okay? Does it make sense? I mean, so, see, you're working. That's what faithing is. Faithing is approaching life by working out the implications of your theology. Well, if God, let's talk about who God is. I mean, if God is, but who God is. If God is, in fact, gracious and forgiving, if he really is, like Jesus says in the parable of the prodigal son, running towards the father, running towards the, the sinner, the boy coming home, if that is how God really is, then how should we live? If he has shown forgiveness and grace like that to us, how should we act towards those who have sinned against us? And when you're faithing, right, you're, you're prevailed upon by God's grace. And so it makes you gracious. When you're faithing, you say, God ran to me in my sin. And so I'm going to run towards others and theirs. And that's this word in Hebrews 11.1, 1, conviction. It means to be prevailed upon by God. That who he is, what he says, what he's promised, it prevails upon your life so that you live from the reality of who he is and what he says and what he's promised. You live from your theology. Now, let me make two applications. It means, faithing means you're living from your theology and not your circumstances. That what you know, what you believe, and not what you see. You're living from what you know, what you believe, and not what you see. Unbelief, which is the opposite of faith, of course, is allowing your circumstances to determine what you think about God. Faith is allowing what you think about or you know to be true about God to determine what you think about your circumstances. You see the difference? Let me say it again. Unbelief is allowing your circumstances to determine what you think about God. Faith is allowing what you know to be true of God to determine the way you think about your circumstances. And so when you're living in unbelief, your circumstances are the greater reality. And therefore, what is, is limited only to what you can see. What you can make sense of yourself you know, what you can deduce in the math that you can do, but when you're faithing, God is the greater reality, so there's always the possibility of something more than what you can see. Faith and sight are opposites, and faith is being persuaded that God is greater than. Fill in the blank. 
that he's greater than, that he's greater than the enemy out to get you, so you don't have to be afraid. You can even love. You can even love the enemy. That he's greater, that his grace is greater than your sins. So you don't have to wallow in self-condemnation. You can live free. That his power to save is greater than your ability to screw things up. Isn't that good news? And so you can look, you can look back at past mistakes and still be full of gratitude and not regret, and you can look forward full of hope and not dread. See, faith is being persuaded that every obstacle or challenge that you might face in life, it is no match for God. It is the conviction that his character and his promises are the greater reality. And so you live not from your circumstances, you live from your theology, not from your circumstances, but you also live from your theology and not your feelings. Oh, this is so hard. We are a feeling culture. And so you live, your feelings don't determine what's true and what's not. They don't determine what you believe about God and what he's like. Who God is, who he's made himself to be, is what determines how you feel. So what you feel has to come in line with what you know, what you believe. And faithing is refusing to be overwhelmed by your feelings, but forcing your feelings to come in line with the truth. You do that by taking yourself in hand, by thinking out your theology, reminding yourself of the truth, identifying the emotion and saying, I'm not going to let the spirit control me here because this is the truth. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to, this is an oversimplification. I'm preaching. I'm not counseling here. Okay. So take that for a grain of salt. But I, but I want us to see that part of what we have to do is just this, that we have to, we have to identify the way that our emotions can get the best of us. And we have to do everything we can to, to allow our theology to trump the way that we might feel. And if you need help with this, or you have a hard time with this, I would uh, make a suggestion to you that you read a book called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. You sh- if, if, you know, there, there's a time for counseling, and if that's the case, by all means, don't be ashamed of that. But if it's just some, some small little things that might be of a spiritual nature in your life, that book is of immense help. And he said this, he said, what you have to do, his prescription is, and he was a doctor, his prescription for spiritual health here was that you have to start talking to your heart and stop listening to your heart. That's what faithing is. Faithing is you stop, you stop, you start li- talking to your heart and you stop listening to your heart. And you find example after example of this in the scriptures. So this is a practice that is born out in the Bible. So, uh, Psalm 42, for example, it's kind of a famous phrase. Why so downcast, O my soul? Remember that? And he says, why, why so downcast? Put your hope in God. What's he doing? He's identifying his emotion. He's saying, you know, okay, I'm, I'm feeling sad. And why am I feeling sad? That's not right. That doesn't fit. And then he begins to talk to his heart with his theology. And it's the same in Romans 8 and a lot of other places in the Psalms where you see people in the scriptures having this practice of faithing, of, talk, of taking their theology and driving it home into their hearts until it changes the way they feel. I say it all the time, you can't necessarily feel joy, but you can rejoice even when you don't feel joy, right? You can't necessarily feel grateful, but you can give thanks even when you don't feel grateful. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's faithing. And so we see the definition, faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, that God is the greater reality. But second, let's talk about the action of faithing also. It sounds a bit awkward to turn faith into a verb like that, doesn't it? Did you notice Jonathan started to do that? and I've kind of, It was jarring to me when I first heard him say it like that, but I think it's right. And I think it makes sense of what, of what the scripture says 
in James 2, for example, where faith without works is dead. A faith that, that does not work, that is not full of action, is not a real faith. And so Lloyd-Jones, again, he used the analogy of a thermostat that acts automatically when the room temperature gets too hot or too cold. And he says that's how people think about faith. They think it's just there and it kind of activates whenever there's a problem. They assume that it just automatically turns on when in reality it's something that you have to put into operation is what he said. You have to take the action. You have to put your faith to work. And in the text, I'm thinking of the word endurance there in verse 36. If you notice that. And it literally means to remain under. It means it refers to someone who is staying put no matter what. So you, you don't back down when it gets hard. No matter what's coming at you, no matter what you're having to go through, it doesn't put you off your mark. Nothing moves you off your spot. That's the word. That you refuse to quit no matter how hard it gets. That's the action of faith. See, you act, you act against your feelings that say fight, or you act against your feelings that say flee, right, or whatever it might be, and you stay put. Now, the opposite of this endurance is what he talks about in verses 38 and 39. You'll notice the word or the phrase there twice, shrinking back. So instead of enduring, often we are shrinking back. And faith and shrinking back are placed side by side here as opposites. So verse 38, if you look there, he says, My righteous one shall live by faith. But he who shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then again, he restates the same thing in the next verse, verse 39. But we are those who are of faith. I'm excuse me, but we are those. Okay, let's do it again. Here we go. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith. And I love, I love that verse. I love the way he puts it. Do you guys do this in your homes? I'll sit my kid down sometime and I'll say, listen, this is the way we do things. We are of this. We are not of this. This is who we are. And that's verse 39. He's saying, he's saying to Christians, he's saying, Christians, this is who we are. We don't shrink back. We don't cower. We're not like people who do that. We don't run away when it gets hard. We're people who have faith. We're people who endure. We're people who trust God and keep after it. That's who we are. That's what he's saying. That's the family, that's the family dynamic. And it says, verse 36, you have need of endurance. He starts off our passage that way, doesn't he? Now, why is that? Well, look at the other part of the definition of faith in verse 1. It says that faith is the assurance of things that we're hoping for. And so we are, we are living toward hope. That is the reality of our lives. And hope refers to a future that we're certain about, but that we're not experiencing yet. It's there. We can't really, maybe can't see it all the, all the way. It's there, it's out ahead of us, but we're not there yet. We're not experiencing yet. We know it's a sure thing and it's coming, but it hasn't come yet. It's not here. And so in all of the Christian life, you're living towards things that are not yours in the present. Now we're going to eventually get to this. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says that even Jesus endured the cross. And it says there, he was able to endure because of the joy set before him. So, like Jesus, our joy, you know, the thing that is the ultimate thing that we're hoping for in life, it's still out in the future. We get little tastes every now and then. But it's out ahead of us. The full joy, the, the thing we really want, it's, it's still in the days ahead. And like Jesus, you have to go through crosses to get to it. 
And by crosses, I mean suffering love. Suffering love for a child, for an aging parent. By crosses, I mean loss or hurt that you experience because of the sin of others or your own physical or emotional weakness, the ways that we're still liable to death. I mean, there are no, see, there are no way around the crosses. There's no way around the crosses. You have to go through them. That's the only way. That's the only way to get to the other side. There's no, there's no shortcut. There's no 417 around downtown I-4 or downtown Orlando, okay? There's only I-4 right through all that mess downtown. That's, 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 the, only, that's the only route. And you have to go through, not around. You have to endure, which means you have to endure. You have to be able to go into it. And when it gets hard, keep going, keep pressing on, not shrinking back, because if you're shrinking back, you're going in the wrong direction. Look what he says, verse 36, not shrinking back so that when you have done the will of the God, you may receive what it has promised. It says, after you've done the will of God, it'll come. After you endure the cross of this moment, it'll come. After you, tra- you travail through this life, it'll come. And I'm not picking on anybody, but Christianity never promises your best life now. That is antithetical to faith. It's not even Christian, really. We live towards hope. Heaven is the zip code of joy. And so on the one hand, faith is brutally honest about the hard parts of life. It's not burying your head in the stand. It's not emotionally dishonest. It's, it's brutally honest. There's joy, yes. But first the cross. And the only way I've got to carry the cross to get the joy. And what faith does, what, what, where faith comes in and helps, is faith, we're told here, makes the time in between here and there shorter by magnifying the beauty of the future. So look there, verse 36 and 37, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. <laughs> Don't you love that? He's saying, I know it looks big. I know, I know it, it seems like a hard road. He says, but it's just a little while. Hang in there. It's just a little while. It's the same in 2 Corinthians that we read, we do not lose heart for this light momentary affliction, right? That's what faith does. It takes the hard thing you're going through and it turns it into a light momentary affliction by, prepare, by, by um, comparing it to what's being prepared for us, this eternal weight of glory that is beyond comprehension, as Paul says there. And so the key to enduring is the right perspective. And that's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Not the assurance that everything's going to work out okay here and now. We're not promised that. But we are promised that every tear sown will be joy harvested. That every temporary cross will become eternal glory. And so we don't shrink back. We are those who strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward our hope. We endure. That is the act of faith. But lastly, how? Where, where then does this come from? What is the source of the faith that I've been describing. And here we want to look at this word confidence. You'll find it in a number, a couple of places here, but faith, verse 35, faith is being confident of your standing with God. It's assurance of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. So verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance. Do you see how he connects it? If you throw away your confidence, what happens to your endurance? It goes away like the mist too. 
The clear implication is that endurance comes from confidence. So do not throw away your confidence. You won't be able to endure. And the theme of confidence with God is actually very important in the book of Hebrews. It's one of the main themes. He's writing to these people because this is exactly what they were doing. The Jewish Christians he's writing to were abandoning the gospel and going back into their old religious mindset. And in doing so, they're doing what he's telling, warning them of here. They're throwing away their confidence. Because in that religious you know, way of doing things, you can never know for sure where you stand with God. I mean, this is a universal human problem. I mean, this is why we gather every Sunday. This is what we're here to talk about. This is the worry under every other worry. We are sinners before God condemned. I mean, Hebrews 4, verse 11 says, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And if you cower at the thought of standing before God in judgment, if you cower at the, at the thought of God's piercing eyes, seeing through all of your pretenses and all of your disguises into the very core of who you are, if you cower at the idea of living before God, then you'll cower before every other threat too. That's the point. And religion is no help. Because the solution to sin and religion is performance. Follow the rules. Perform the rituals. Be a good person and God will love you and bless you. That's religion. But how do you know if you've done enough? How good is good enough? And what happens if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed tomorrow and blow it? Richard Lovelace said the problem with moralism is that it doesn't satisfy the conscience. It doesn't even satisfy your own standard of right and wrong. There's always more that you could do. There's always something more, something better, something harder, whatever it might be. And so people who are merely religious are, he talked about how profoundly insecure and anxious they are about the status of their goodness. Which is why when you encounter a religious person, a lot of times you'll find them to be condescending and hypercritical. Because if your standing with God is based upon your performance, then you can't ever be sure you've done enough to earn his love and favor. And so you've got to be constantly boasting, knocking other people down, whatever it might be. And the problem is you won't endure. You'll be shrinking back. You'll, out of fear over the harsh master that you think you serve, you'll bury your talents in the sand like the man in the parable that Jesus told did because he was so afraid of how God would react to him. But see, that's, that's not the way. In Christianity, though, which is something different, in Christianity, you can be sure of God's love for you. You can have no doubts, no doubts, because it's grace. You don't earn it by obedience, and so you can't forfeit it by sinning. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 are really the heart of the gospel where it says, we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. I mean, if you're a Christian, God doesn't love you any less when you're at your worst. The reality is, is he loves you the very best when you're at your very worst. He loves you in spite of your sins. He doesn't condemn you. He's compassionate, it says there. He feels empathy for you as you struggle with sin. He's much softer and more understanding with you than you are with yourself. Your sins do not cause you to lose God's love. They are the, actually the very thing that excite his love. He loves you because you're a sinner. Because he loves to magnify his grace. Why? Well, because Jesus, we're told, there was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. You're a high priest. He knows the struggle with sin more profoundly than you do because he never gave in. You give in. You quit too quick to really know how hard it is. But not him, he went all the way. And it says he, he knows how we're tempted in every respect, yet was without sin. And his sinlessness is the reason that we can be confident of our standing with God and we can come boldly before him. Do you see the connection? If you can look back at that verse 
It says, verse 15, and then in verse 16, it says, he was yet without sin. Verse 16, therefore, let us with confidence draw near. It's because he was without sin that we can live confidently before God. Because it's all grace for you and me, but it has been earned for us by Jesus. His death upon the cross for our sins, his life of obedience without sin to win for us a righteousness by which we can stand before God naked and unashamed. I've never for one moment of my life been naked and not ashamed. I gotta be honest. I hide from the mirror. Thanks, Steve, for the amen. But we were made, we were made to be naked and unashamed, like the man and the woman in the garden. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and not in yourself, then you can live confidently before God in full assurance that he loves you, that he is for you, that every sin that might condemn you has been forgotten and thrown into the depths of the sea. Because Jesus was treated on the cross as you deserve, now, if you, have your, if you put your faith in him, now you are treated by God as he deserves. All of the intimacy and access and love with God the Father that Jesus enjoyed from all eternity, all of that he now gives to you so you don't have to be afraid. And here's the thing, knowing that, knowing all of that just might awaken something tookish in you. What, excuse me? Well, let me explain. I've been told that I'm letting my J.R.R. Tolkien illustration game slip. So, at the beginning of The Hobbit, Bilbo, who is uh, the, the little guy that's the main character. He's invited to step out in faith. He is invited by Gandalf and the dwarf company to go on an adventure. And at first he's very resistant because Bagginses are really just simple, plain, quiet folk. And he says that. He says, but we are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. Okay. And uh, the Bagginses were farmers, but Bilbo was not only a Baggins, he was also a Took on his mother's side. And the Tooks were famous adventurers and warriors. And as he meets with the dwarf, dwarvish company and as he hears of what they're about to do, Tolkien writes this, he says, something Tookish woke up inside of him and he wished to go and see the great mountains and explore the caves and to wear a sword instead of a walking stick. Bilbo found his courage. That tookish part of him that had laid, laid dormant in his life came out and he took a leap of faith. And I want you to know there's something tookish in you as well. There is. You're made to live the kind of life that we're gonna see in Hebrews chapter 11. And, and that is what I'm hoping that Hebrews 11 does for us. That is my prayer as we go through this chapter over the next months, that it will wake up something tookish in us because that is what it is meant to do. Now let me just finish by saying this. Faith is ultimately looking to God. We could define it that way, uh, very, very just succinctly. We are looking to God. So 2 Corinthians 4 says, as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. We, we go through life looking to God, not looking in at ourselves, not looking around at what's going on or help from other people, but looking to him. But here's the thing, you learn to look to God by looking at God. When Peter stepped out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus, he got in trouble when he stopped looking at Jesus and when he started looking at the winds, the wind and the waves. And so faith is a matter of eyeball time. 
what you're looking at. It makes me kind of snicker too. What you're spending your time thinking about. What you're setting your eyeballs on. And that's where I would leave you. If you want to find the confidence that you need for your own adventure, if you need moral strength to push through the hard stuff and to get to the joy on the other side, the very first step is develop is to develop habits of looking at God in order to learn to look to him in faith. The hymn writers are our big help to this, and there was an old Gatsby hymn that I think summarizes this just to finish. He says, increase our faith and love and make us watch and pray. Oh, fix our souls above, nor let us ever stray. Dear Lord, do thou our strength renew and lead us on with Christ in view. Pray with me if you would. So Father, help us even now. It might be that we listen to this sermon and we start to think of all of the ways that we have failed and we start to, uh, this morbid introspection where we just get full of ourselves and it's just the wrong thing. We're meant in this time to fix our gaze upon you. And so help us even in this last song that we're gonna sing now to turn our attention for this moment, for these three to five minutes, whatever it takes, away from the fears and the worries and the cares that we might have come into the room with, the hopes for the friend that's sitting on the other end of the pew or the, or the failure of, of that friendship or whatever it might be and to instead just take our whole gaze and bring it up to you. Because you are worthy. You are the one worthy of our trust and our hope. And so, Lord, we would pray. We believe but help our unbelief, increase our faith and give us grace that we can sing our way to the faith you mean for us to leave with. We might not feel it in this moment, but may it be true that we encourage and exhort one another as we sing now. We know that faith is a gift. So here we are helpless before you saying, Lord, if you do not give it, we go away impoverished, but here we are with empty hands. Would you give to us this great gift of faith that we might say yes to whatever adventure it is that you're calling us to, to follow you in. Because that is the good life. Awaken something tookish in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So who knows what adventures await us as we walk out that door, right? But no matter what comes, we stand as children of the promise. We fix our eyes on him. And we go knowing that whatever we might face, the one thing we can be sure of is that we will not face it alone. Because if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has settled his heart to love you. Right? He promises to never leave you or forsake you because of Jesus. His face is turned towards you. That's what these words mean. You can live confidently before him no matter what you face there because of the work of your great Savior and High Priest. And so receive these words of benediction. And may they be uh, the courage that you need to go and to endure through this next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.